We're going to read this uh, as we go through it. It's uh, uh, one of these very well-known Bible stories that we often get wrong. So we'll deal with that today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the Scriptures. Thank you for making us your people. Thank you for this church, this family. Lord, this morning as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us to understand what's really going on in these verses. Lord, I ask that you would help us to see ourselves in these verses and help us to see that we can't earn your grace. Help us to see that your purposes and your promises are better than anything else this world has to offer. For this, we need your grace. We need your spirit. Give us the desire to learn from you, just as we prayed with the children a minute ago, to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my uh, favorite characters from the classic Peanuts comic strip is the little brother of Linus and Lucy, who goes by the name of Rerun. It's a great name. The, uh, it's right up there with Pigpen. Now, Rerun wasn't the name his parents gave him. Uh, actually, he got tagged with it by Lucy, who apparently was less than thrilled with the prospect of another little brother. But there is a sense in which all of our children could be named Rerun, expressing the fact that uh, most parents see a reflection of ourselves in our children. Uh, in many ways, their attributes and skills, their strengths and weaknesses, their interests and passions, not to mention their looks, are often a rerun of our own. They are, as we might say, a chip off the old block. Now, Isaac was, in the fullest sense of the phrase, a chip off the old block. In fact, the very few events of his life that Scripture records for us are a great deal like his father's. His entire life is, in the uh, memorable phrase of Yogi Berra, deja vu all over again. The result of this side-by-side -side comparison is we can clearly see the ways in which he shares his father's strengths and weaknesses. First, there's a problem of not being able to have children threatening the fulfillment of God's promise of numerous descendants. Second, like his father before him, he was faced with famine. God's promised land seemed unable to support him, and he had to decide to stay or to leave for the perennial greener pastures of Egypt. Third, again, he counters the same temptation that his father had of passing off his wife as his sister to protect himself. And we're going to see that next week in Genesis uh, 26. And we'll also see that he gets involved in quarreling between his herdsmen and those of Abimelech. Mirrors the same conflict that Abraham uh, had with Abimelech. Um, so in a very real sense, Isaac's life is a rerun of Abraham's. But his life isn't merely a, a compilation album of Abraham's greatest hits. Rather, in Isaac's rerun of Abraham's experiences, we see God's faithfulness extended to a new generation. And surely that's an important lesson for the original audience uh, of the book of Genesis. The wilderness generation, those that Moses is writing to, uh, they're out there wandering in the wilderness and standing with Moses on the brink of the promised land. 
Much of the generation who went through the Exodus and went out in the wilderness is dying off. They went through the parting of the Red Sea are now dying off. And many of the people of Israel now were born after uh, that uh, event, those events, and they were in fact born in the wilderness. So they had to rely on their parents' testimonies of those stories. And they had to ask the question, would the God who had done great things for their fathers do great things for them? And the answer is that just as Isaac could count on the God of Abraham, so also the God of Moses would continue to be with his people as they attempted to conquer the land under Joshua. It's an important lesson for us to remember and for our children. Week two, just like the people of Israel, we can rely on the God of Abraham and Isaac, Moses and Joshua, to be faithful to his promises to us in our day and our situation. God doesn't change. His faithfulness endures forever. So Isaac and Jacob are going to deal with several issues uh, here in Genesis 25, our text for this morning. And in dealing with each issue, they're going to be confronted with just this decision. Can we trust God to be faithful to his promises? Are we going to have to figure this one out on our own? And so we start by seeing how they dealing, how they are dealing with disappointment. How they're dealing with disappointment. That should be the first blank in your outline. Starting at verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So the story of Isaac really starts in verse 21 with Rebekah's barrenness. She's unable to bear children. Now, this is a tragedy at any time, a pain that perhaps cannot be understood except by those going through it. Couples battling infertility are among the most hurting people in a church. Many of you have been through that battle. Some of you are fighting it now. And if that's your struggle, this is a tough church to go to simply because we have a lot of kids. Now, I don't want the rest of you to feel guilty because you have kids. But I do want you to feel compassionate for those who want kids or want more kids, and God hasn't answered that prayer yet. Pray for them. This situation is really hard. I quickly, in preparing this, I went through a number of old address lists of the church going back about 12 years. And uh, I tried to count up how many families the elders have prayed for regarding this issue of having children. And I'm, I'm sure I missed some uh, along the way, but I counted nine families that we've prayed for actually over the last 15 years uh, since I've been here. And all but one are parents today. And that one I've simply lost touch with and just don't know what's going on with them. So we will pray for you. All you have to do is ask, but it's still up to God. And yet, as difficult as this situation is, for Isaac and Rebekah, the problem is much worse. After all, God's promise revolved around them having children. An uncountable number of descendants, like the sand of the seashore and the stars of the sky. 
And yet here they are in the same boat in which Abraham and Sarah had found themselves some 40 years earlier. And they're back face to face with the same question that repeatedly faced Abraham. Can God fulfill his promise? Or does God need our help? During his life, Abraham was presented with that choice over and over again. Didn't always go well, but slowly over time, he learned to make the right choice. He found that it was one thing to trust God, which we know going all the way back to Genesis 15, and he believed the Lord and it was counted, and he counted it to him as righteousness. But it's another thing altogether to move that belief from his head to his heart and trust God in the everyday decisions of life. And perhaps that's where you find yourself. You've trusted God completely for your salvation, but you're not sure about trusting him all the day-to-day decisions. Some of those decisions are big. How are you going to find a wife or a husband? How are you going to find a job? How are you going to pass this class? How are you going to act in this difficult situation at work? What are you going to say when faced with a messy relationship? The reality of the Christian faith is that our faith is being put to the test daily in a multitude of little and not so little ways and not so little tests. We're actually being constantly, regularly tested. Of course, when what God's promised doesn't seem to be materializing, Satan is waiting right there. And he has a deceptive shortcut for you. For Abraham and Sarah, after years of waiting, he presented the shortcut of Hagar. And the result was family dysfunction and division for generations. In so many situations, the choices that face us are essentially the same as that which faced the patriarchs. Believe God, even when it doesn't seem like that's going to work, or follow Satan's shortcut. So how does Isaac respond to this test? Well, here, he's a model of faith. Maybe only here, but certainly here, he's a model of faith. Look at verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord for Rebekah. The Lord answered his prayer, and she became pregnant. Sounds easy, right? Isaac prayed. God gave him the desires of his heart. It's only when you get down to the end of verse 26 that you discover it's not quite as straightforward as all that. If you remember, Isaac was 40, verse 19, was 40 when he married Rebekah. Now Isaac, verse 26, is 60. It's 20 years later. And just like Abraham and Sarah before them, Isaac and Rebekah waited a long time to see their prayer get answered. Year after year go by, nothing happened. But Isaac and Rebekah learned from Abraham and Sarah's example that God could be trusted. So they wait with such patience, there's nothing much to report between the praying of the prayer and its answer. There would be no Hagar for them. They believed God and were willing to leave the outcome to him. With such an attitude, it sometimes turns out that the long-delayed answers to prayer are the most faith-building. Because when they're finally answered, we can see in them the hand of God most clearly. But you have to ask the question, but what if God should see fit not 
to give us what we earnestly seek from him? What if even after long years of waiting, we're still disappointed? After all, God isn't the great slot machine in the sky, you know, whose arm you pull until you hit the jackpot and he gives you the desires of your heart. He's not the custodian of a celestial warehouse of delights waiting for you to pick the right number so he can release your personal prize pack of blessings. Nonetheless, he is good. He is good. He gives us that which we most need. He gives us Jesus. And through Jesus, he gives us eternal life in his presence. And if we have that, then what else of real significance are we lacking? I mean, to complain that he's failed to give us some good earthly gift, as we so often do, even though we sought it with prayers and tears, is like a toddler fussing on Christmas morning because the large pile of presents he got came wrapped in the wrong paper. We need to be reminded regularly of Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's goodness to his people has been demonstrated beyond question in the death of his beloved son on the cross for our sins. So whatever disappointment you're facing, infertility, cancer, unemployment, broken relationships, depression, whatever it is that's testing your faith, we can look again and again and again to the cross where the love of your heavenly Father was demonstrated for all to see once and for all time. But I wish disappointment was the only issue that Isaac and Rebecca had to face. There's plenty of issues that they have to deal with. And in most of them, they're not a shining example of faith. And that came to have a great effect on their children. And so for much of their life, they're dealing with rivalry. Rivalry, that's the second blank. Verse 22. The children struggled together within her. And she says, if it is thus, in the words of every pregnant mom, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So finally, the long years of waiting come to an end for Isaac and Rebekah. She discovered that she's expecting twins. I'm sure she thought that was a double blessing. And yet this sibling rivalry starts in the womb. And you thought your kids didn't get along. When we first meet Jacob, he's not even born yet, and he's already involved in a fight with his brother. He's born grabbing his brother's heel, either trying to overtake him or trip him up. And in many ways, that first encounter sets the stage for everything that's going to follow. 
We saw in the life of Abraham uh, how faith developed in human form over his life as he journeyed towards the promised land. Jacob is a little different. He's a man who seems to stumble from one family conflict to another. He demonstrates quite a different set of virtues. Jacob shows us the triumph of grace over all obstacles. Because with all of his sinning and scheming and plotting and manipulating and deceit, Jacob is apparently the perfect model of how God's grace can succeed with the least promising material. And it all starts with Rebecca's pregnancy. Now, no pregnancy was easy, but Rebecca's was particularly tumultuous. It says, verse 22, the children struggled together within her. The Hebrew somewhat graphically uh, literally says, the children smashed themselves inside her. She felt as if her womb had become a battlefield. According to the Hebrew commentator Nahum Sarna, the sense of her dismay is something like, why did I pray to become pregnant? He says it might even be taken as, why do I go on living? you got to remember, Rebecca's no wilting flower. Two hours, 80 jars of water, fill the trough for 10 camels. She's pretty tough. And yet there's mayhem in her womb. And she just had to be wondering, what on earth is going on? And so in her pain and in her perplexity, like her husband, she turns to God for an answer. It says, so she went to inquire of the Lord. Rebecca and Isaac were living in Beer Lahai Roy. It's the same place where God had told uh, Hagar about the birth and destiny of her son. And Hebrew tradition says that Rebecca went to the exact same spot to seek God's word. And what she hears is of cosmic significance. The warfare in her womb would have far-reaching results. She learned she would have twins, and they would father two nations that would divide and oppose each other. Verse 23. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So this theme of conflict between brothers is not new to the book of Genesis. We saw this rivalry first with Cain and Abel, all the way back in Genesis 4. We saw it with the sons of Noah through Abraham and Lot, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, and it'll continue on down to Joseph and his brothers. Genesis reveals this consistent pattern of family rivalry. And not only are they rivals, but very clearly the text tells us that one shall be stronger than the other. Of course, you might think that's a reference to Esau, the strong one. It's actually not. It's a reference to Jacob and the children of Israel, who throughout the history of Israel beat up uh, Edom. Now, Edom is the descendants of Esau. David beat the Edomites. Joab beat the Edomites. Amaziah beat the Edomites. Jehoram beat the Edomites. And you can go on with a lot more hard-to-pronounce names. I mean, you just if you read through First and Second Kings, time after time after time, and this guy came up and fought the Edomites and defeated them. They're the perennial whipping boys of Israel. Anytime the Israelites needed a good victory in battle, you could always count on the Edomites, and they would defeat them. 
And not only is one stronger than the other, and not only are they rivals, but once again, very clearly, the text tells us the older shall serve the younger. And again, this is repeatedly emphasized in Genesis. From the very beginning, the older brother Cain had his offering rejected, while younger brother Abel's was accepted. The line of Seth, an even younger brother, was the chosen line. Younger Isaac is chosen over his older brother Ishmael. It's not just the guys. Rachel is chosen over her older sister Leah. As we move through Genesis, we'll see that Joseph, the youngest of Jacob's sons, was chosen over all his brothers. And at the end of Genesis, we'll see that Judah is chosen over his older brothers. Significantly, the New Testament is painstakingly clear that the order of nature does not determine the order of grace. There's no favoritism with God. There are no privileged positions. Being born of Abraham isn't enough. Being born of Isaac and Rebekah isn't enough. Being the oldest child isn't enough. Our salvation is all of grace and not at all of our own merit. God is no respecter of persons. It's made clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. You know, I never really liked this passage. Because you realize it's talking about us. It's talking about the church people in the church. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Tradition doesn't determine grace. Convention doesn't dictate grace. Neither does giftedness or natural endowments. Grace doesn't bow to social privilege or status. And the ultimate reason for all this, according to Genesis 25 and the rest of the Bible, is election. Those whom God has not chosen, who are living out of accord with God's will, are always at war with those whom God has chosen even when they grow up in the same house. In the midst of these rivalries, God's purpose is to bless his people and keep his promises stand secure. Most significantly, Paul argues this principle in Romans 9, which was our responsive reading this morning, to show that natural descent, the Jewish bloodline, does not ensure salvation, and he does it by referring to the case of Jacob and Esau. Not only so, but also when Rebekah conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Jacob became the heir to the promise, to the blessings, because of election. Not because of his moral virtues or good works, because the brothers weren't even born yet when the choice was made. Not only that, but God's choice went beyond the individuals to nations. We know this because of the context of this quotation in Romans 9. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. That comes to us from Malachi 1 which the whole thing says, 
I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declared the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. And I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, refers to the descendants of Jacob, the Jews, and the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, who spent long uh, periods of time either getting defeated by the Israelites or in bondage to the Israelites. The selection of Jacob individually and the Israelites corporately is solely due to divine choice. And God's hatred has to be understood in a relative sense. God did not hate Esau and the Edomites, but it was hatred in comparison to his choice and his love for Jacob and the Israelites. This relative use of hate is several times in the Bible, most notably employed by Christ himself in Luke 14, where he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, cannot be my disciple. We have to understand what Peter says, Second Peter, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should re reach repentance. But at the same time, we have to understand, as the Apostle John told us, John 3, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And God's wrath is the outworking of his hatred. Notice that in all of this, as difficult as it is, God offers no explanations. He certainly offers no apologies for his choice. The love of God transcends human convention. His sovereign grace will not bow to the order of nature or human expectations. His merciful election is a fact whether we understand it or not. God's purposes are as set as they are incomprehensible. So Isaac and Rebecca deal with disappointment. And they deal with rivalry for pretty much the rest of their life. And last but not least, we see them dealing with desires. Verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Isaac came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Esau means red, Edom means red. That's why the Edomites are the descendants of Esau. His name was called Edom. It's kind of strange. It's like naming your kid Red and then giving him the nickname Red. Verse 31, Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of course, what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So the rivalry grew as the boys grew. What should have happened as they grew up is they should have been prepared uh, for their destinies in God's plan. 
Esau should have been prepared to find his blessing in Jacob, and Jacob should have been prepared for his role as the godly ancestor of the Messiah. Sadly, that's not the case. And where God refuses to show favoritism, the same can't be said for parents. And in particular, it can't be said for these parents. Look at verse 28. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now Esau is the strong outdoors type who loved to hunt. He was named Esau, which means red because he has red hair, a ruddy complexion. Yet an image of Esau, you're sort of thinking of the original redneck. You know, pickup truck, ponytails, gun rack. Jacob's a shepherd or a rancher. He moved with the tents and the animals, and he stayed with the tents and the herd. However, he is not a sissy. That's what people think. Esau hairy, Jacob smooth. Esau hunting, Jacob cooking. Esau man, Jacob sissy. It's not at all. He watched the herds, ran the family business. Our closest equivalent is probably a ranch. Go to a ranch sometime and call the men there sissies. Let me know how that works out. I'll come visit you in the hospital. But we start to learn, get through their names, some of the character of these two men. The name Jacob means he takes by the heel, but is often used to imply deceiver or cheater. In Hebrew, the name Jacob sounds like the word for heel. For some of you that are older, because I tried this in my high school class and none of them knew this. Have you ever heard of someone called a heel? It's a pejorative term. And now you know where it comes from. Not only is there favoritism here, but notice that the children are valued for what they can do for their parents. The ground has been prepared by the parents for a lifetime of rivalry between these brothers. And in time, the sin of Isaac and Rebekah is going to come home to roost in the fitting judgment of God. Isaac's going to be deceived by his taste for wild game, and Rebekah would find her stay-at-home son propelled far away from her. And between verses 26 and 27, some 15 to 20 years have passed. And now Esau comes home from hunting, and his pickup skids to a halt in front of the tent. And he goes inside. He smells something good. He's like, wow, that smells really good. He wants some. He's famished. He's exhausted. And just how dysfunctional this family uh, is can be seen in what follows. Because instead of offering his brother some soup, verse 31, Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. He has the promise of God. But that wasn't being fulfilled quickly enough. And Satan's standing right there with a shortcut. And he's going to snatch the birthright for himself through his own cleverness. Of course, Esau should never have agreed to such a deal. He counted the privilege of having a birthright of less value than a bowl of soup. He's a man driven by his appetites to exchange what is eternal for what is temporal. And yes, it was just plain stupid. It's because Esau is a man who lived in the Gilligan zone. I've been waiting for this one. Those of you who are older than me will remember the show. 
The rest of you can see it on the old TV show rerun channel. Now let's see, there was Gilligan, the skipper too, the movie star, the millionaire and his wife, you know, the cast of the eternally rerunning sitcom Gilligan's Island. Many of you remember the story. They boarded the SS Minnow that day to take a what? A three-hour tour. A lot of you must watch that old channel. Little did they know that a storm would come up and they'd end up shipwrecked on some deserted island and they'd have to stay there trapped forever in rerun land. But when they boarded that day, they had no idea how far they were going to go or how long they were going to stay. Some three-hour tour. Gilligan's Island, of course, is just a TV show. But three-hour tours that take you too far and keep you too long are very much real life. Just ask Esau. As we've read, one day he's coming in from hunting and he's really hungry and his brother is cooking up uh, his specialty, stew a la Jacob. And Esau says, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. Jacob replies, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die here. What good is a birthright to me? And right now you want to just yell at Esau. Don't do it, man. Deal or no deal? No deal. It's a lousy trade. Esau's deaf. He can't hear. The Bible goes on. He swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. He ate and drank and rose and went on his way. And Esau felt better for a few hours, probably three. But because of that choice, he was miserable for the rest of his life. And there is a tragic P.S. to Esau's life that we find in the New Testament. It comes to us from Hebrews chapter 12, where we read, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. With one short-sighted decision, Esau entered what I'm calling the Gilligan Zone. You decide on something that will feel good for a while, thinking it'll only be a three-hour tour. But you end up in the Gilligan zone, farther than you ever wanted to go, staying longer than you ever wanted to stay. And for you, that's not a TV plot. It's happened to you. And it all starts when we act like Esau. We do something because it'll get us through right now. It'll meet a need for us right now, only to hurt from it for years to come. And that's the ugly secret about sin. It looks like it'll benefit us, and like Esau, maybe our bad choices actually give us some short-term benefit. But that deceit, that giving in to the pressure, that compromising your integrity, uh, that drink, that sexual sin, that cutting corners to get ahead or get accepted, something appears in front of you that looks as if it'll meet a need or relieve the pain or help you get ahead, and you only meant it to be for just a little while, maybe just this once, just a three-hour tour. But sin doesn't let you go once you let it out of the box. It takes you farther 
and keeps you longer than you ever bargained for. In the words of James 1, then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Too many people never make it back from sin's three-hour tour. That compromise looks so good but costs so much. And a moment of relief is not worth a lifetime of regret. But before we judge Esau too quickly, don't we do the same thing? We forego the lasting benefit for the short-term pleasure. I mean, how many people have shipwrecked their career, their marriage, their ministry, for some appetite that was of more value to them than the promise of God? You know, I, I typed into Google when I was doing this. Politicians and scandal. 8.7 million hits. In fact, Wikipedia has its own page on politicians and scandal, neatly arranged by administration. Trading the eternal for the temporal isn't unique to Esau. It's the Satan shortcut that tempts each and every one of us. It affects our judgment, and its consequences inflict our pain. Now I'm going to say something really hard. That's how the process of election always works. Those who remain outside the kingdom of God don't lose something they desperately want. They lose what they refused to value. Think about that. Those who remain outside the kingdom of God <laughs> don't lose something they desperately want. They lose what they refuse to value. Think about that. Noah didn't have to fight to keep people off the ark. Satan's shortcuts don't work. They promise much and deliver little. They promise you a shortcut into the promised land and leave you with another 40 years to wander in the wilderness. So what should God do with these two brothers? One thought his birthright was of less value than a bowl of soup. The other thought it was a commodity that can be gained through manipulation. I mean, which of these two should God choose to save? Asked my Sunday school class. He said, neither. I mean, they're both morons. And when you view them side by side, the wonder is that God could love either one of them. Neither one deserves God's work in their life. What clearer evidence could there be that God's calculations aren't the same as ours? What more proof do you need that our salvation is all of grace? How can God save such big sinners? There's only one hope. He must send a Savior who's not like Jacob or Esau. He must send a Savior who will regard his birthright, that of being equal with God, as not something to be grasped, but taking on the form of a servant, something to be freely given up on behalf of others. He must send a Savior who regards the birthright of his chosen people, a birthright which they despise and trade away as something so precious he'd gladly purchase it at a price not measurable in gold or silver, the price of his own blood. Such is the Savior that Jacob needs. 
such as the Savior that Esau needs, such as the Savior that I need, and such as the Savior that you need too.